Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 84, and we're covering the year 1820, and a momentous year it was. Between December 1819 and the first quarter of 1820, 21 ships left England and Ireland bound for the Cape, carrying 5,000 men, women and children. The ships docked at Cape Town after weeks at sea to take on food and water, and for officials to come aboard. Settlers were not allowed to leave the ships, which then sailed onwards to anchor in Algoa Bay, starting in April 1820. The rest would follow through to the end of July, the midwinter in South Africa, not the best time to land a ship on the coast. You can imagine the immigrants' shock as they looked out over the bay from these vessels, because there was nothing in the way of settlements, just bush, and the landscape was alien, at least at first. The Eastern Cape is a remarkably beautiful area, but it's rugged, full of succulents, dry, and when it rains, seemingly covered in vegetation. Who were these people, these 1820 settlers? The colonial office initially had instituted rigid conditions to supposedly ensure that those of sound character were shipped out, but these rules were broken almost immediately. Some were parties under the leadership of men of means and ability, as you've heard, those who could take indentured servants and laborers and mechanics, as they were known, but the colonial officer's original idea of taking only agricultural men and women who'd been dispossessed of their land in Britain was poorly instituted. It appears that many of these farmers were not farmers at all, but artisans, tradesmen and mechanics who changed CVs, so to speak. They pretended to be men of the earth when they were really men of settlements. They had grand dreams of paradise after all the Times and other newspapers had published glowing reports of this new land of milk and honey and would do anything to get out of Britain. Some parishes sought to unload their less productive citizens and falsified their skills on the resumes. Speculators had also insinuated themselves into this morass of applicants, signing up idle young men who volunteered their contracts of servitude for many years. They were young and foolish, and would find themselves fettered by these contracts for some time. The gentry also joined in, so the landed class led the most substantial parties, and these were from ancient families, but they had no clue about the proposed Albany settlements, and were going to cope very badly with what awaited them. Why did so many people want to escape from England at this time? Well, it was hell back home. Riots, uprisings, land theft, economic decline, government oppression, it all tore at the fabric of British society, and for many of these people, escape to South Africa, or virtually anywhere for that matter, was better than staying at home. Ironic then, that in the 21st century, Africans are trying to make the reverse trip. But I guess times change. Back in 1820, these men included the likes of Miles Bowker, who carried his family's silver seal that linked him to Charles I, and whose ancestor John Bouchier had seen his daughter Elizabeth Bouchier married to Oliver Cromwell. Miles's family later wanted a less French-sounding name, so they changed it to Bowker. Cromwell, just in case there's any confusion, led the armies of the Parliament of England against King Charles I during the English Civil War, and then ruled Britain as Lord Protector from 1653 until he died in 1658. Cromwell is also one of the most controversial figures in British and Irish history, considered a dictator by some including Winston Churchill, while Leon Trotsky called him a bourgeois revolutionary, and John Milton called him a hero. Cromwell committed genocidal acts against Catholics, particularly in Ireland. 
But in 2002, a BBC poll saw him elected as one of the top ten Britons of all time. So the fact that the descendant of a woman who married Cromwell escaped from Britain under a new name to live in South Africa is a passing curiosity, perhaps. The Bowker family seat had been Deckham's Hall near Newcastle, but their shipping fortune was ruined by the Napoleonic Wars. It all ended up with Miles Bowker renting a 1,000-acre farm from the Earl of Pembroke when he heard of the plan to send settlers to the Cape. Eventually, he left England as an 1820 settler at the age of 56 to make some provision in life for his eight sons. They sired large families in the 19th century. You're going to hear quite a bit about the Bowkers. Miles, being semi-aristocratic, took eight indentured servants with him to the Cape. When he left, the Earl of Pembroke hired carriages and carts to transport the Bowker family to Portsmouth, along with their family portraits and inlaid furniture. Then there was Major George Piggott, son of Lord Piggott from Berkshire, 45 years old, when he packed the family's silver furniture and a piano, along with his two daughters and his carriage, on board the ship. Thomas Phillips, lawyer and banker, a Whig politician of Pembrokeshire, quarrelled with his peers over politics, so he took a party of 25 to South Africa, including his wife and seven children. One of the most interesting and influential was Thomas Pringle, a 31-year-old poet and journalist and editor of Blackwood's Edinburgh Monthly Magazine. He was to launch the South African Commercial Advertiser, the first independent newspaper published in the Cape, but more about that a little later. Pringle had just been sacked from Blackwoods, and his family was in big trouble. His dad was a struggling farmer in his 60s. His sisters were about to sign up as domestic workers in jolly old England, while his brothers were talking of America. Thomas thought Africa sounded a better bet, and borrowed £15 from Sir Walter Scott, and the future South African humanitarian convinced his siblings to join him. As you're going to hear, there's an intersection between these new arrivals and a changing epoch in southern Africa. One where human rights as a concept flooded into a land unready, and where class and race suddenly emerged in all its full-blooded madness. Pringle was going to publish some very interesting stuff in the future. Another was William Shaw, who was the 11th child of a sergeant in the York militia. He joined the army before his teens, and at age 14... He had an epiphany. Shaw began preaching, and in 1819, aged 21, he joined a party of Wesleyan families from London as their minister, heading to South Africa. These men and women believed they were saving themselves from a desperate future in England and were willing to dive straight into a future unknown at the Cape. They were imbued with recent evangelical developments and the widening power as well as influence of evangelical religion over their thoughts and character had a real bearing on what was going to happen next. William Wilberforce back in London was an abolitionist, and many of these men and women who travelled to South Africa brought the anti-slavery message. They were not compatible with the landscape. Their presence on the Eastern Cape frontier immediately triggered a survival mentality, and for all their high-minded religious abolitionist beliefs, they would descend rapidly into hostility and suspicion of black South Africans. As these thousands disembarked, they were going to affect every major aspect of life in the Cape Colony and beyond. The established colonists they met, the Trekboers, were rooted in the Dutch East India Company moribund lifestyle. They were still locked in the 18th century, if you like. 
the legal system, the nature of local administration, the landros, the currency, the despotic nature of government was all established through the last two centuries. None of these things were known by these 1820 settlers. The established colonists and trek boers and existing farmers were not accustomed to pondering abstract notions of freedom and expression. They did not fixate on historical precedents of liberty. They were free in their minds and lived that way. Liberty for the Trekboer meant not being ruled by any government to be free to roam on the felt. Land for the taking, labour to lash, but where a sense of community was sorely lacking. Schools were non-existent or virtually so. The main publication in South Africa was the Government Gazette, which virtually no one could read. Into this culture plummeted the city-dwelling English speaker with his and her shire-based communal life, imbued with a spirit of empire, if nothing else. Back in Britain, the fear of the governing classes had had a debilitating effect on freedom. Between 1815 and 1820, revolution was sputtering in England, and the settlers that landed their boats on the shores of Algoa Bay in 1820 landed with the notion that it was their human right to argue about anything with anyone. Public opinion was shaped by information and debate. The power of newspapers and pamphlets were about to shake the foundations of southern Africa. They were the people of towns and arrived in a country where the Trekboers had managed to settle only two places on the frontier, Graf Reinet and Jutenheim, both created by the Batavian Republic. Fort Frederick, soon to be Port Elizabeth, and Grahamstown were established by the British. These were tiny settlements, really just a small huddle of military buildings. In addition, there were also two villages set up by the missionaries at Bethelsdorp and Theopolis. To put this in perspective, that was six towns in an area almost 170,000 kilometers square, which is pretty much almost twice the size of Portugal. There were no roads, just a few wagon tracks, and some of these were actually elephant trails that had been turned into roads. The Trekboers' life, meanwhile, and as you know, resembled much of the life of the indigenous South Africa. They had absorbed much of Africa as they wandered around the Cape. They hunted ivory and skins and traded cattle like the Amakosa and the Amatumbu and the Khoikhoi. They did not actively seek diamonds nor gold. They were not like the Americans conquering the wilderness with their visions of cities and expanding metropolitan corridors. The Trekboers did not prod the future, as Noel Mostad writes. They were stirred by the seasons, like the Amatkosa, active in hunting and counting livestock, passing long hours of the day, gazing into the African distance. However, the new arrivals were going to shake this foundation. The British immigrants, like their brethren across the seas in America, were bringing an obligation of the age. Not all who arrived were driven by this epoch. However, we're talking about culture here. The 1820 settlers arrived in South Africa mostly imbued with a broad notion they were going to rapidly improve their position in life, leapfrogging prospects, so to speak. They, in turn, were going to learn a great deal about how to live in Africa from the Boers and the Amatkosa and other indigenous people, and their first lesson was about the natural world, along with a new kind of patience in this ancient environment. These thousands arrived at Algoa Bay and were disillusioned virtually as they anchored offshore. As I said moments ago, when they arrived in Cape Town, they were refused permission to disembark despite months at sea. They did not carry disease. No, the reason they were denied permission to take a small boat to Cape Town 
was that locals would tell them how bad it was up there in the Albany region and many would have refused to board their ships for Algoa Bay. The British authorities kept them away from the truth. Colonel Kyler, the Judenhag Landros, had pitched an immense tent city just behind the dunes in Algoa Bay and every wagon in the eastern districts had been hired to carry these settlers to their allotted land, mostly around Grahamstown. You can imagine their shock when they looked out from the ships and saw no jetty, no quay, no lights, no harbour, just dunes, and what looked like scary Indian Ocean rolling swells breaking across the beaches in a spray that was furious, thundering, and seemingly deadly. Very few could swim. Apart from the tents, there were three thatched cottages and two small wooden houses at Fort Frederick. That was their new civilization. After spending a few days on the gently rocking ships, they were taken ashore riding the waves in surfboats and then entered their tents. Thomas Pringle, the poet and editor, wrote, We continued gazing on the scene till long after sunset, till the constellation of the southern hemisphere, revolving in cloudless brilliancy above, reminded us that nearly half the globe's expanse intervened between us and our native land. He continued, Bargemen and soldiers were shouting to each other across the surf. Tall Dutch African boos, with broad-brimmed white hats and huge tobacco pipes in their mouths, were bawling in colonial Dutch. Whips were smacking, bullocks bellowing, wagons creaking, and the half-naked Hottentots who led the long teams of draft oxen were running and hallooing. Some called the scene reminiscent of an invading army, which, considering what the effect of these settlers was going to be, is not far wrong. And straight away, the English class system was the differentiator. In some tents, pitched apart from the rest in the bushes behind the dunes, the occupants were what Pringle called a higher class of settlers. Everything was neat and tidy within, and ladies and gentlemen, elegantly dressed, were seated in some of them with books in their hands. Others were rambling among the shrubbery. I could not view this class of emigrants with their elegant arrangements and appliances without some melancholy misgivings as to their future fate, for they appeared utterly unfitted for roughing it. A little way beyond these upper-class few in the main settler camp, There were several hundred tents pitched in regular rows called streets. These were a mixed bag of English, Irish, Scots. These were watermen, fishermen, sailors from the Thames and English seaports. With a reckless, weather-beaten look, wrote Pringle. They were also the pale-visaged artisans, operative manufacturers from London and other cities in England of whom doubtless a certain proportion were persons of highly reputable character, but a far larger portion were squalid in their aspect, slovenly in their attire, and discontented and discourteous in their demeanour. As Pringle walked through this tent town, he finally came across the poorest class, languishing together, and they were what he called the pauper agricultural labourers. They were healthier than the pale-visaged artisans, he admitted, but on the whole... They formed a motley and unprepossessing collection of people, and he estimated that two-thirds of these motley folks were, for the most part, composed of individuals of a very unpromising description, persons who had hung loose on society. They worried him, the motleys, low in morals, he warned, idle, insolent, and apparently drunken, mutinously disposed towards their masters and superiors. He found himself sceptical, about their future conduct. 
and destiny. Few of these arrivals had the slightest idea what they were in for. They did not understand that Lord Charles Somerset had organised this entire settler corps for one main reason, as a human barrier against Amakosa encroachment on the frontier. Nor did they fully understand where they had been allocated land. They could see the Union Jack fluttering above Fort Frederick. That made them feel better. So did the ball at the Marquis a few evenings later. However, Lord Charles wasn't there to greet them. He'd already boarded a ship back to England on leave before they arrived, and they were greeted by Major General Sir Rufain Duncan. He hadn't been idle, and had founded the new town of Bathurst, named after the British Secretary of State for War and the Colonies. A spot to rest the weary oxen legs before pressing on to the hills above Grahamstown and the other highlands. Pringle's views of the motley crew were not shared by everyone, but they all had a pretty blunt way of describing what they saw, and because they'd literally been thrown into the heart of Africa, shoved precipitously into surroundings, as Noel Mostad says, they all felt like aliens, arriving in a place that was both inconceivably strange and yet curiously recognisable. Thomas Phillips, he with his seven children, ex-politician, said that they had arrived in a park, the whole scene continued lovely, as he watched Springbok and then Elephant pass by. The birds were none he'd ever seen, plumage dazzling in the sun. Major Piggott's daughters were quoting Jane Austen. Sophia Piggott spent a little time making poetry on the beautiful scenery before walking on ahead of her wagon. Heard something in the bush, very much frightened, almost cried, ran back, met the carriage, got in, went over a beautiful road like the best in England. But, ringing in their ears, was the warning issued by Colonel Kyler. Gentlemen, whenever you go out to plough, never leave your guns at home. A sinister undertone seemed to permeate this Garden of Eden. Each party then began their final journey to their allotment, and each was comprised of a long wagon train laden with possessions, such as agricultural machinery and ploughs, coils of wire, and so on. The Phillips group had 19 wagons, each pulled by between 10 and 14 oxen, moving at three and a half miles an hour. And so Sophia could hop off her carriage and walk off to compose poetry. It was slow-moving and led by boor guides with their koi-koi drivers, and in some cases San or Bushmen walked with them. That night they experienced what it was to live in Africa, outspanning the wagons, and their new lessons began. First, as protection against the lion's elephant hyena, the wagons were drawn into a lager, then the oxen were tied by their horns to the wheels, and finally three huge bonfires were lit to scare away the beasts. The boers laid their muskets alongside their sleeping posts. Pringle watched all of this. He noted what he kept calling the Dutch African boers were gigantic in size and sat apart in what he called aristocratic exclusiveness, smoking their huge pipes with self-satisfied complacency. Pringle was travelling with Scots immigrants and listened to their broad brogue. Some of their teenagers tried to talk to the koi-koi, observing their merry pranks or practising with them. Neither side could speak the other's language, but they appeared to be conversing, said Pringle. A sandman sat behind, mimicking the sounds of these various languages and voices. These different colours, said Pringle, all with a variety of mien and attitude, character and complexion. Their colours appeared and disappeared. As the fires flickered, they were shape-shifting. Pilgrims in the wilds of savage Africa, wrote Pringle. Then, by degrees, the groups became hushed. 
The settlers retired to their tents and wagons. The boers stuck their pipes in the bands of their hats, wrapped themselves in their great coats, and went to sleep on the ground, fearless of snake or scorpion, wrote Pringle. The koi drew themselves into their sheepskin carosses alongside the boers' feet to the fire. Over the wide expanse of the wilderness, now reposing under the midnight moon, profound silence reigned, unbroken save by the deep breathing of the oxen round wagons, and, at times, by the far-off melancholy howl of a hyena, the first voice of a beast of prey we had heard since our landing. It would not be the last time they heard the hyena. After many days of travel, they arrived at their allotted land. Few were as fortunate as the gentry like Phillips, who was given one of the best pieces of property near Grahamstown with a broad plain ideal for corn, a garden of an acre and a half already planted, two entire areas of woodland full of the finest timber from where they hunted rabbits and birds for the pot. But further away, Jeremiah Goldswain arrived at a farm previously owned by Boers that had been attacked by the Amakosa during the previous year's war. The farmer and his family had been killed, the house was gutted, Goldswain was shaken. Henry Dugmore, who would become a missionary later, said the Boer guides bid them goodbye, and they were set down in a bleak, desolate place. At least they had a small river nearby. Most who arrived in the new land were forlorn. They were alone, their nearest neighbours ten, twenty kilometres away. They had no buildings, and sat on their boxes and bundles. But they had spent days learning what they should do, so they then set to work building the fires to keep the lions away, and their life as settlers had begun. But Thomas Pringle didn't know was that his Scottish group had been allocated land 170 miles northeast of Algoa Bay, confiscated from the Slachtersneck rebels near Brankies Hoogte, in a fringe of no man's land between the colony and the Amakosa. The land Ingrika was forced to leave, the land the Amakosa regarded as owned by their ancestors. Pringle wasn't going to hang around this area for too long. Historians have described this operation as probably the most callous act of mass settlement in the entire history of the British Empire. 5,000 people were dumped on Amakosa land, where, less than a year before, wars had been fought over the territory, where Ingrele had railed against the coming flood of colonials, and Ntlambe had listened. And here they were, contemporaries of Jane Austen, mostly middle class, not ready to rough it. Needless to say, the Amakosa noted with a great deal of interest the arrival of these 1820 settlers on their land. Nchlambe and other chiefs received constant updates about where they were headed. It would take three months for the Boer wagons to deliver all settlers from Algoa Bay to their farm sites. And by the end of July 1820, the Eastern Cape frontier had seen an influx the likes never seen in southern Africa. Amakosa, Khoikhoi, San and Boer were joined in the space of 90 days by a veritable city of people who spoke no local language, knew no local customs, had no local knowledge. What happened next is for episode 85. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there at deslatham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.